This is WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with global soul. Coming up next, Art on the Air, with your host, Rob Hessler. This is an hour-long interview program dedicated to the visual arts. Each week we feature guests in conversation about their theory, practice, and current projects, as well as the state of the visual arts in our community. On this week's episode, we'll be airing a special field note with internationally recognized multidisciplinary artist Sheb Woolley, who just completed his project Cream for a Day in his hometown of Littlewicky, Georgia. Next up, he'll be bringing Mutter to Savannah. Plus, we'll be airing our long-form interview with Suzanne Jackson from the Jepson Center that was recorded last year in conjunction with her Five Decades exhibition. In it, we talk about her life, career, and the retrospective. So let's get started with another episode of Art on the Air. Here's your host, Rob Hessler. This is your host, Rob Hessler, and you're listening to Art on the Air. If you're listening to the live show, it is Wednesday at 3 o'clock, and I'm happy to have you listening in. I've got a great show lined up for you today. At the end of the show, I'm going to play my interview from last year with Suzanne Jackson, so that's a big one. It was one of my highlights of 2019 interviewing her and chatting with her about the five decades exhibition but even more so about her life and career and her philosophy and that was really great but we're not just going to be playing an old interview we're also going to be playing a new interview this week and it is an interesting one i spoke with artist sheb woolley and I have to say, things got a little contentious. I had some issues with some of the things that he was proposing and doing. Everything started off just fine, but then when he started talking about his project here in Savannah, I had some real issues with what he was planning. And, well, I mean, it got a little heated, so I think that's kind of interesting. A first for Art on the Air, a situation where there was a bit of an argument between myself and one of the artists that we featured, but... You know, I decided to go ahead and air this interview anyway. 
And, uh, you know, I like to keep it real here, art on the air, and you never really know what's going to happen when I have a guest on. So going to play that for you coming up here next. And it's a nice long interview. It's about 20 minutes long. So we get into all of Sheb's projects, including Mutter, his project in Savannah, that I had some issue with. So listen in, hear everything about Sheb, and I'll come back on the other side of that and say a couple of words before we get into our Suzanne Jackson interview. But enjoy Sheb Woolley. Rob Hessler with Art on the Air Field Notes. I am on the phone right now with artist Sheb Woolley. We are here to talk about his new project, Mutter, which is going to be coming to Savannah, Georgia. First of all, let me just say, Sheb, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Well, thank you very much. I'm really glad you called. You are well known throughout the state of Georgia and throughout the country, really. But a lot of our Savannah listeners, since this is your first project, might not have heard of you. So before we get started, if you'll indulge me, I want to read this short bio that you sent over to me. Sort of like coming home. Let me tell you that right now. Oh, well, we'll talk more about that. Sheb Woolley primarily works in the medium of raw materials from a classical standpoint, bringing lofty aesthetics to earth by engaging urbanistic methodologies, making a statement of the environment with tools of the world, by cultivating transparent mappings. His recent work in his hometown of Ludowicki, Georgia. I'm sorry, Rob, uh, that's Ludowicki. Ludowicki, Georgia. My apologies there, Chef. Yes, sir. Uh, Ludowicki, Georgia was titled Cream for a Day, an interactive installation where visitors driving through would experience in textures, smells, and screen projections becoming a cake. From primary materials through the baking process and completing the journey with a light, fluffy icing made with the natural elements from the area. Mr. Woolley's next project on the horizon is named Mutter, set to be in Savannah, Georgia, downtown at Forsyth Park, and will be a humble tribute to the roots of the Lowcountry region with a medium of modern days. His creations have appeared in municipalities throughout the world in remote settings and have gained critical recognition and acclaim. So let me just again formally welcome you, Sheb Woolley, to Art on the Air here today. Thanks again for taking some time. I know Thank it's you a, so much. Yeah, it's a bit of a difficult situation. I'm impressed. I appreciate that. I'm impressed with your resume. In fact, I wanted to kind of take a step back before we get into talking about Mutter, and I also want to talk about Cream for a Day because I'm a big fan of cake. I wanted to talk a little bit about your background because I think it's really interesting how you sort of came to become a international figure. Yes, yes, because I see here, according to your bio, that you actually have a Bachelor of Arts in Cosmetics and Hairstyling, and then you went on to get a Master's Degree in Beekeeping. So to me, that's just such an interesting background. So talk a little bit about that. Well, also, and while I was at, that was in Ludowicki Community College, where I'm from, and so that's why I say this is all coming back home to me now. And that actually culminated into a project, one of my first, where we combined the beekeeping and the hairstyling together and uh, made different hives for women to wear, which, if they couldn't take care of them at home all the time and they were concerned, they could take their bees with them to the grocery store. And it became a popular project uh, until, of course, the, we started getting a little trouble with the hospital lawsuits. But after that, it, the photographs turned out really well, so the prints sold well. Well, wait a second. So you were having, people were taking beehives into stores? Well, we, and... were, com- we were combining the beehives with the hairdos. So they would wear them woven in on their heads, 
and most of them uh, were low-topped and more wide as a beehive, not so much as a tall thing. Uh, so they could still drive the cars. But uh, it was it was a beautiful project. We uh, it, it brought back bits of different eras of art, like through the Cubism, through the Renaissance, and we were able to apply about 28 different hairstyles that way throughout a two-week period. You mentioned Cubism there, and I know you also did a project recently called Cubism Squared. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was in a little place. That was in a, in a place called France. Uh, that was a little town, what was it, St. Amand. And it was just the idea of putting some murals around to beautify the area. We got together with the city council and the local winery. And uh, after a few days, we came up with this idea. We celebrate the cubism. Uh, but we did it through different styles. And so there was the George O'Keefe represented, as well as uh, Norman Rockwell and Salvador Dali all the grades, but we did it in our own aspect of the natural environment of the area. Depicting the beauty of the area if it was attacked by well-dressed robots. Yes, we thought we'd, we'd, we'd mix the, the classic styles of France with robots and bring a little of the modern day into it of uh, just a different perspective people should have where they live. And uh, that the, the, at first, it wasn't too well received. I'll be honest. Uh, and uh, we had to, uh, we finally paid uh, the permits to do them, and then it was well received. Well, we're gonna get into permitting. After that, after that, the city uh, touted them and, and started selling the postcards. Of course, I had to get 100 percent of the cut on that one. And uh, a lot of a lot, of, the winery was very helpful. Actually, we stayed a lot of time there uh, before we came up with the idea, and after. Uh, so I want to really thank them. That's the Chauvin Noir Winery in France. I have to mention them. Always mention the sponsors. So uh, that was that was uh, that was one of my favorites. As a matter of fact, glad to mention them. I want to talk a little bit about permitting issues because I, I'm, I'm sort of curious, uh, you know, just knowing what I know about the Mutter project that you've got going on, how that all worked out. But before we get into that, I wanted to. There was one claim that you made here in your bio, and I, I just wanted to sort of have you address it because it's gotten a lot of attention lately, and that's the the um, the banana tape to the wall piece that was down in Art oh, Basel, okay. Miami, and you, uh, Sheb Woolley, you mentioned that in your, in your uh, bio that you sent me here that you feel as though that you were the originator of the project, in fact, that you had used oh, tin, I was. tin cans and a I'm not sure about that at all. Yeah, so tin cans no, and I nail guns. I started that. They copied that from me and, and just replaced some materials. But I had the original impetus to for that. Uh, I was in the at Art Basel in Miami. As I was in the back uh, near the dumpsters, uh, using a nail gun and tin cans to the wall. And it was a piece we were we were going to call the universe as it should be. And uh, some guy came out there and was hungry, I gave him a banana, and he stole my duct tape and went inside, put that on the wall, and the rest is history, and I never got a piece of that, and kind of missed, but, you know, those things happen in the art world a lot of times, and I, I, I'm willing to let that all go, but I'd like people, you know, no, I should get a little credit for that idea. Later, I, I honestly, I took uh, some of the tin cans and put them on eBay. I was charging half of what he did. 
I don't mean to bring up bad memories. Let's move over into something that is a little bit more positive, and that is the incredible response that you've gotten about the project Cream for a Day, where viewers and visitors experienced the process of oh, becoming yeah. a cake. No, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm just so excited about that. Yeah, that's, yeah. So tell us about that, because that's really, I've never heard of such a thing, and I thought that was really interesting. Now, that was originally, and got the idea going through the car wash. What it evolved into was the people going through the town, if they went through a certain area of town, that we had a facility set up where their entire car would be coated with batter. And then we'd have the heat oven they would go through to bake it on the outside a bit. And then, like I said, natural elements from the area. We had a lot of sugar cane and okra. And so we made a nice frosting out of things like that and coated them with that as they drove out. Most of the times we could keep their windshields clean. So as they drove out, I know they seemed to be, they seemed to be really excited to show their friends because a lot of them went real fast when they left. Um, but we had some good acclaim from the locals because uh, everybody got their chairs out to watch this as it went on. And as the day progressed, uh, they would bring us more materials to throw on the cars. So it became more than just baking a cake out of the people's cars while they drove by. It became a community interactive process. It really warmed the heart. For those of you just joining us, you're listening to Art on the Air on WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings Community Radio with Global Soul. I am your host, Rob Hessler. And my phone guest right now is Sheb Woolley. Wow, well, that's really interesting, and that's a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm curious to see how you're going to involve the community with Oh, your... I have a feeling with this project. Yeah, with... project, right? Right, yeah, so this it's one called... I think is going to be another big hit. What we're trying to do is, uh, it's based on the, the Balking Heads project I did a couple of years ago. And we're going to have what I see as the portrait of Savannah, developed into Forsyth Park with a unique medium, a couple of unique mediums, of course. We're going to go for an aerial view when it's finished, so you can see the whole work. But while it's going on, you can't really see it. We have it mapped out. We use 10-foot graphs throughout the whole park. And when we come in with our mediums, uh, we'll try to stick to that so that when the aerial view from the drones are taken, you can see the finished work, and that will be put up for everyone to see. And we wouldn't mind people coming in to participate as well. We're bringing our own mediums, but, uh, you know, we're open to others. Of course, please let us review them first before you come in. Well, what what should people expect? I mean, what exactly is it? I mean, I I know it's called Mudder, and it's in Forsyth Park, but... What is the actual construction of the piece? Like, what can people expect? I mean, you've used such unique materials in the past, and we just talked about... Well, the medium in this, I think, you know, because we're dealing with the low country region, is why I'd really like to emphasize. And so we're dealing with dirt, is basically what it is, and we're going to utilize some of the Spanish moss trees as well in a unique way. And the dirt will be constructed... We have some monster trucks available, and we're going to be spreading out all the water in the park before the pups come in, and using those 10-foot graphs that I told you about, we can finally put a whole image together if we 
if we pay attention to what we're doing, of what I see is a profile of beauty of the low country. Wait, wait a second. So you're gonna you're gonna lay down oh, a bunch. And let me tell you, wait, one more, one more medium is that some of the trees, of course, we're going to add in there, but it won't be just as they are. We have flamethrowers. Then we're going to hit on the Spanish moss, just on the edges, to give them that proper baked look. And a lot of that will fall off, so we'll use that when we take the monster trucks through the field to carve out this picture. For, you know, balance and contrast. Wait, you're going to use monster trucks and flamethrowers? Yes, yes. And it'll eventually, like I say, be a beautiful portrait of what I feel is the low country. Uh, in my particular vision. And everybody will be able to see that when it's finished, but only from the aerial view. Are you serious? Absolutely. And so far, uh, the, we had a lot of great response. I didn't explain it too well to a lot of people, so we had a lot of great response uh, in what I did explain. And uh, I think it'll be exciting for the community. And like I say, I'd love to have everybody involved. At least if you come out to see it, especially if you're near the trees when we do the flamethrowers, I don't want you to sit too near. So uh, I guess we'll be maintaining a, you know, a little barrier there. But come out and watch anyway. And, and you know, we're uh, give us a little. Uh, actually, bring us some iced tea because I, we're willing to accept food too. I just don't see how this could pop. I mean, you're talking about destroying the park. This is not something that I don't. Th I, it's the, not destroying. Yeah, it's refurbishing. I'm sorry. I just, as an out of town artist, I don't see how you got permitting for this. I don't know what you could have possibly done to make permits. the. Yeah, permits. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we're on that. I'm sorry, Mr. Woolley, but I, I just don't. Are you really serious about this project? Yes, for those listeners out there, we are <laughs> April Fools. Of course, I am, Fools, guys. I am speaking to my good friend and Art on the Air co-creator David Laughlin as Sheb Woolley. That was totally insane. I <laughs> well, who do you think you're dealing with, buddy? We do this stuff all the time, except we don't get away with it usually. <laughs> <laughs> For our listeners out there, David approached me a couple of weeks ago and, and presented doing this idea as part of April Fool's. And, you know, with everything that's going on in the world right now and everything that's oh the stress level, uh, you know, I think it's kind of nice. We and I think, need a little levity. Yeah. A little bright, shining spark every now and then. I mean, we can't just watch TV all the time and be upset. <laughs> that's why I listen to the radio with you. Yeah, a lot more better media. But, yeah, I mean, well, April Fool's, guys. And hope everybody's being creative. We've been having a great year up until the freaking year started. <laughs> well, let me ask you, David, like, where did you come up with this idea? Because Sheb Woolley and, you know, I, I played the straight man. I, I had really my... regret using that name. That was, it, it just popped in my head for that name. It was like, okay, we'll run with it. But, oh, my God. Sheb Woolley, he was actually an old cowboy star back in the early 60s and all that jazz. And he also wrote one of the worst songs ever in the world. Perhaps you'd like to know what that is. Yes, I would. It's the one-eyed, one-horned, blind, purple people. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. He wrote that. And I didn't think about what the hell he wrote until after I put the name in. It's, this is what we're doing. Okay. 
And I figured, you know, not everybody knows who that is because who pays attention to old cowboy stars after all? <laughs> Except me, Tom. <laughs> anyway, uh, we just come up with this idea. Sometimes. You know, I used to do the humor. A lot of people don't know this. I used to do a humor magazine uh, for years down at Keys, and we would come up with stuff like this all the time. And it, it was just so much fun. You know, we didn't get a lot of press releases about things going on, but we just made up our own stuff. It was based loosely on the old National Lampoon magazine, not the movies, and the old Weekly World News, which had the stories about... Bad Boy. Yeah, Bad Boy's the most famous. One of my favorite headlines ever, to exemplify what these guys said, was hypnotized dog testimony used in court. And it was like, that's so brilliant, because it's not just dog testimony, it's a hypnotized dog testimony. That was like, why not take it a little step further? <laughs> yeah, I, a dog giving testimony in court just wasn't enough. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, by the way, here's the story. Can we use this? You know, my dog actually did get sued when we were doing that newspaper. And he got sued for slander and defamation of character. I listened to the publisher. I've still got the paperwork for that. Not dead period. That happened. I got sued too, but the guy had to drop the suit when he found out he sued a dog. <laughs> it was great. Oh my I think God. I made national headlines, but I never saw it. One of the things I love about this project is it's very much in line. Like you're often posting up things that are a bit more lighthearted, things that are a little bit more positive. So like following you, it's nice because there are just, as you mentioned, article after article about stuff that's going on in the world, and it's very serious, well, and so we want that information. or beautiful or something people would, you know, positive stuff. Why not? I'm not going to post pictures of food. Nobody wants to see what I bake, although I do bake. That's what a community does, and my, now with the internet, my community is, I've got people all over the freaking world, and they're like minds where we just share what's going on. It's like the old phrase of small-minded people, I guess, talk about people or something in a negative way. But a larger way of looking at things is talking about ideas and thoughts. So that's what I put. I mean, that's just my own personal. That's what I try to project with my art, you know, although sometimes I can't help what I do with that. If you see my Instagram you'll see that I try not to post more than three pictures a day. But it's most of that was just walking the dog around the park and flare. Yeah. It's such a gorgeous place. And so it's so gorgeous that you wanted to create a fake artist who would destroy it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you always search the ones you love. <laughs> well, look, David, why not... Well, i got to wrap this interview up, David. Why don't you give your Instagram, actually, so that way that if people want to follow oh, what well, you're doing. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, it's, uh, no, it's, you can't, I can't pronounce it. It's the, T-H-E-I-D-O-S-D-A-V. The, it of Dav. Yeah, something like that. Yep. And I think if you do a search for David Laughlin, you'll find that as well. But the yeah. it of Dav yeah. is uh, it's a great follow, and there's a lot of you post up a lot of fun stuff. And Facebook too, friend David, because uh, I enjoy the things you post up, the images you post up, and stuff like that. So anyway, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I wonder because I never hear them. Well, David, thank you so much. Really appreciate you. And we're gonna have you when when the studio reopens. We'll have you back in the studio, and we'll do a real 
uh, a oh, real man. serious sit down. Yeah, I love you guys, and uh, you and you know the kid and all that, little Douglas. Oh wait, Lincoln. That's right. And I knew there was some debate about that. Anyway, um, yeah, kiss the baby for me, right? So, <laughs> oh, you finally got that joke. Uh, <laughs> just, just. I, I mean, I don't know if getting it is the right way to put it. Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. All right, David. Hey, thanks, man. You. Appreciate it. Thanks. And that was our special April Fool's Day presentation of my interview with Sheb Woolley, a.k.a. David Laughlin, co-creator of Art on the Air. That was a lot of fun, and it was so great to talk to David again, and that was such a great idea that he had. And, of course, you know, as was our usual go-to back in the day when David was one of the co-hosts, I played the straight man, and he did his thing, and we had a really good time, and so that was a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoyed it as well, and uh, as I said in the interview there, we're going to have David back on in the studio to talk about his art and everything. When we do this show, we don't really talk about ourselves and what we're doing, so I want to have him come back in so that way that I could actually interview David about David, so he's doing a lot of interesting things down at City Market with La Galerita and many other things, just being himself, so... Don't have a lot of time to chit-chat because we need to get into this interview with Suzanne Jackson, and I think you're going to enjoy it. It was from her Five Decades exhibition last year over at the Jepson Center, and she talks all about her life and career. It's really great. So thanks for tuning in to Art on the Air on WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Sounding's Community Radio with Global Soul. Here is my interview with Suzanne Jackson. Enjoy. Rob Hessler here with Art on the Air Field Notes. I'm at the Jepson Center at the exhibition Suzanne Jackson, Five Decades, which is opening this Thursday. I have Suzanne Jackson and Rachel Reese here. Suzanne, why don't you get us started by telling us sort of an overview of what this show is all about? The exhibition is a retrospective of works from 1959 to 2019. And it's almost a life story, in a sense, because I've moved from, I was born in the middle of the United States. I lived in California. I grew up in Alaska. I went to college in California. I was in grad school in New Haven. I live here in Savannah permanently since 1996. And I've traveled working all around the United States. But My feeling is Havana is really a beautiful city. We have so many artists here. And my retrospective is not just for me. This is something that I'd hope to do because I know that there are artists who were students here, people who've come who are writers, musicians. We have incredible musicians are from Savannah originally, historically. And I feel that people coming as tourists or as visitors need to understand that there are artists who need to be supported here. And I'm hoping that this exhibition will help the artists who live in Savannah receive more support. We have Rachel Reese as a contemporary curator now who actually visits artists in their studios. We did not have that opportunity before. So for me, this represents not just my work because it really is just a fraction, actually, of the works that I've done in my life, even though this is a huge exhibition. For me, I'm sharing it with everyone. And in the vitrines, there are representations of people that I've known in Savannah and around the country who have supported me and who have been an artist with me. 
And speaking of studio visits, Rachel, you have visited Suzanne's studio many, many, many times over the last several years putting this show together. Tell us a little bit about that process where obviously now everything is going up on the walls, but there has been so much that's gone into this exhibition over the last couple of years. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So Suzanne and I have been working on this project officially for over two years. I think it was June 2017 when we sort of officially launched the sort of approval and planning stages of this exhibition. But I met Suzanne earlier in 2017, actually, after the Nick Cave opening. If you remember the Nick Cave exhibition, Suzanne approached me after my lecture and introduced herself. And she was an artist that I was trying to get in touch with and go to her studio. So it was very serendipitous. But yeah, Suzanne and I have been working for several years on this and it's really been an unearthing and an organizational project as much as sort of a getting to know her not only through her work but through her life story. And it's been a real joy for me to experience sort of figuring out the unique puzzle of editing it all together as a cohesive exhibition, right? How to represent an entire life story, an entire artistic output into one exhibition space. So that's been the unique challenge that I have had over the past few years. So again, you know, not only just representing her visual artwork, but all these other interesting creative facets to her life. You know, she was a costume and set designer, um, a poet, a dancer. You know, these are all part of who Suzanne is as an artist. And we wanted to make sure that entire story is told and shared. Right, and let's talk a little bit about that because in addition to all of the pieces that are here on the walls, there are paintings, there are installation pieces, but there are also these boxes that just have so much material from your past, Suzanne, that sort of tell not just the story of your artwork, but of your life. And obviously going through all of those various pieces and looking back at the past and trying to tell your story, that must have been quite an undertaking. It was, and there were albums and drawers and notebooks that I had begun to try to organize them just for archival reasons, but there were some things that I'd completely forgotten. I hadn't gone through family albums, and the incredible team of interns that Rachel put together last year from Spellman and Scad and from Parsons, they were just so excited and curious. And this is part of the reason I was saying this has been a younger team of artists and curators and everybody working, you know, for public relations, much younger generation than I am. So people being curious about historically how did we look, how did we dress, and finding things about me that I had forgotten. Uh, I even found some of my early drawings that my mother put away in a hope chest that I didn't even realize that I had done. And re-looking at photos of my family in Alaska and my original photographs when we lived in San Francisco. My mother made most of my clothes, so there are photos of the clothes that my mother made for me. And when we lived in Alaska, she made my parka. So it's sort of fun to see. And then I don't have all of my files. Files were lost moving in storage, so a lot of my professional dance photos were lost. But it was interesting, I think, for everybody to see me as a teenager doing some of the things that I was doing then. And coming from Alaska, you know, having grown up there, people, especially as a, you know, a black artist or, you know, a person of color, they don't think about 
the international community that's you know growing up in Fairbanks before it became a state. It was a territory, and we had an interaction with Canada and people from Russia and all over the world. So my perspective tends to be global, even in my upbringing. And moving to the South, I've learned so much about family history and history of the United States. So that's part of what this exhibition also represents. Well, let's talk about uh, one transition which you made, which was, of course, you're talking about your time in Alaska, but then you spent a great deal of time on the West Coast. And as we're sort of talking about these boxes, which have these artifacts from your past, there's a lot of detail about your experience running and being a part of Gallery 32. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's a really fascinating part of your history. It seems to be a prominent history now. At one point, I thought Gallery 32 was forgotten because some of the artists who become very well-known, as a result, never mentioned Gallery 32. When I was looking through, I was teaching at SCAD, I was looking through the College Art Association. Uh, They have a call for proposals. And a couple of historians from Boston were asking for proposals. And there it was, a proposal for anybody who knows anything about Gallery 32. So I presented a proposal at Boston, and they said, well, yes, we'll take you since you should know about it. And I, I, was, there, I was there with slides. Everyone else had CDs. And Damon Willick, who was a professor at Loyola Marymount, was doing a presentation on Ed Keenholz. So he went back to talk with his director, Carolyn Peter, who was an incredible researcher. She found things. And the way that Rachel has researched this show, Carolyn Peter found the artist, found all sorts of information on Gallery 32. It started because I had just come from South America as a dancer. I graduated from college at San Francisco State. I auditioned for Sacramento Music Circus, and that company was going on tour of Mexico and South America. We rehearsed and performed in Mexico, then we toured 11 countries in South America. I then moved to Los Angeles just at the time that it was the love-ins and the human beings in San Francisco. I was there for the first one, and then I got to Los Angeles. I was there for the first love-in, and I was actually looking for studio space. That's all I knew that I was supposed to do as a painter, look for a studio. And after living in an underground studio in a storefront and a wonderful villa on a hill that was sold, and I was taking class from Charles White at Otis Art Institute, Mm which is in the MacArthur Park area of Los Angeles, downtown. I love that area. It's bustling. There's people from you know, all the Latin countries. And it smelled like South America that I had just come from. And then I found these beautiful buildings, the Granada buildings. And it was very much like a hotel I'd stayed in in Montevideo called the La Alhambra. And I thought, this is the building I want to be in. I'm going to have my studio here. You could live upstairs. Originally, the building was made so that uh, women could have living space upstairs and a little business downstairs. Mm. And I found the space. But because I was in the class at Charles White's class, David Hammonds was in that class. And I think later, Alonzo Davis, some other artists were in the class. And they said, when they saw my space, they said, you should have a gallery in here. And I said, no, this is my studio. I don't want a gallery. I'm supposed to work. And somehow I ended up with friends having an exhibition there, and it just (laughs) went on for two years. 
And it was more of a space, because I was used to the way life was in San Francisco, people, coffee houses and jazz around every corner, because I had studied ballet in San Francisco. And my friends, we all just spent time in San Francisco at college. We would go from either rehearsal or painting class, and then we would go and peek in and listen to the jazz and the blues coming out of the clubs and coffee houses in Berkeley. It was just a very active time in 19, late 1960s. And of course, there was a Vietnam War. There was all sorts of things going on in this country that activated us as young people. And we just did things. No one told us we couldn't do what we thought we should do that was right. And so that space in Gallery 32 was really a place for people to get together, artists to get together to talk. We didn't have a lot of money. And... It was just sharing. We actually shared, and artists would come in and put a work up. David Hammonds was famous for that. You know, he's had shows, and he's famous for not having a gallery, just walking into wherever he wants, and he makes the rules. He did the same thing as a young artist, and it probably is my fault, um, <laughs> because I let him walk into the gallery and just put up a work of art at his own reception. And it was the artists actually presenting their shows, and several people would walk in. One artist would tell another artist, or people would pass by. And if they had some really good quality work or work with a message that we thought was important and should be said because the, uh, we weren't being represented at other galleries, that was what we were doing at Gallery 32 for two years. Well, that's an incredible story. And, of course, you can see so many artifacts, including photos of the space. And there's one exhibition that there's a few photographs of as well, an installation there. But I wanted to ask you, Rachel, there was something that really stuck out with me with what Suzanne just said. She thought that people had forgotten about Gallery 32. As you're putting this exhibition together, you and Suzanne are working hand-in-hand to put this exhibition together. How is it that you kind of decide, well, this is something that it's time for people to remember? It's really hard. I mean, I think it took a lot of many, many months of listening, looking, without any plan in place. I don't think we had a plan in place maybe until a year after maybe just looking and continuing to discuss. You know, I feel like my approach in the very beginning was just trying to absorb as much information as I could because how do you know what to show or what framework you're supposed to put around something until you have all of your information. I feel like this project could continue into multiple projects. We've talked about it could be multiple books, multiple catalogs, but this is sort of a first stop at a look at an entire career's output. And there were some really hard editing decisions, you know, we had to make, and some of those things were related to scale and just thinking about our exhibition galleries. Some things were related to, you know, condition of, you know, archival object or the location of an object and, you know, budgeting, things like that. So we were really trying to balance all of those factors and make sure we were presenting the best story with the limited amount of space in this gallery. So, you know, we have 42 works that span 60 years and then seven cases that sort of look at different topics her life in Savannah, her life in California, her early life and upbringing, and then some specific call-outs, so a case about her murals in Los Angeles in the late 70s, and some ephemera around that, a case about her theater career, working in scenic and costume design. That's a big part of her story from the 1990s really to the present day, how it impacts 
these double-sided paintings, right? So there are moments and there are through lines in this entire exhibition. And we were walking through earlier just saying, oh, it's so nice how we can, a quote from that we had picked up on earlier now represents in a different way in another case or through an artwork. So we know, the two of us know a lot more about this exhibition than the public is ever going to know. But we do hope there's really important kind of there's key things that seep out and that somebody might be able to grasp onto and find many different points of entry in the show. I mean, it was a really hard process, I will say. We did have to make some hard decisions and have to understand that, you know, we can't show everything, but we hope that, you know, the presentation that we put together does her story justice. You know, it is the largest, most comprehensive show of hers in her entire career. So there's also a big responsibility there, and that's something I was thinking about, too. Well, let's talk about the works then in the show, because essentially you have the work spanning through two gallery spaces, one which sort of encompasses most of your career from, well, there's a portrait from when you were 16 years old to your time spent on the West Coast and then several other galleries that you've been involved in over the years, kind of leading up until your time in Savannah. And then there's a second gallery which has the newer works. Before we get into the newer works, let's talk about the older pieces because I know that people sort of recognize you for those pieces. And I'm sort of curious how you went through the process of deciding because there's often a difference between what an artist thinks are their best works and what are important while they're working throughout their career versus what maybe the public or critics maybe think is important and what is good work. So considering that you were collaborating with Rachel on putting this show together, how did the two of you decide, well, these are the works that are going to define your art career from age 16, that first painting, until sort of the more contemporary works? When Rachel visited my studio, I hadn't thought about it at first, but I'd had that early painting. Did I have it hanging up in the kitchen or not? It was in the kitchen, and it wasn't until later that I thought, oh, that's the painting I did when I was 15, 16 years old, teaching myself to paint with oils from how-to-paint books from the pharmacy, where I bought records and comic strips and classics illustrated, and and those how-to-paint, how-to-put-down the you know, the first layers of paint and how to prime the canvas, all those things I was teaching myself. This is WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, and WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with global soul. The other works, I have to say, Rachel managed to get the museums to agree to those pieces almost immediately from the very beginning, Mm -hmm. but there are... Many of my works, because I had an excellent dealer in Los Angeles back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, Ancrum Gallery, Mm -hmm. and there are many collectors in Los Angeles who hold large works of mine and works from those early periods, but they won't let the work go. Because there have been a number of catalogs and books published, people refer to the works that they are familiar with that have been published already. For example, uh, Los Angeles had the large exhibitions called Pacific Standard Time with 60 galleries and museums represented. The works that were borrowed for that exhibition were from some of my early collectors who were very kind to loan that work for about five years. So those works are being referenced over and over and over again and being borrowed from one exhibition to the the next. There were other books that were published back in the 70s and people know those works. But it's as if because I moved around so much and finally settled in 
Savannah, and this is my whole point of people beginning to recognize Savannah. It, it felt as if I was just lost here in Savannah mm-hmm. working, but I was also teaching and painting. And I had the pleasure, really, of being here and just in my studio to work with no one bothering me or telling me what to do. But I think because of those early publications that have been presented over and over again, some people have also been teaching my painting in the universities, which I did not know, and they've been teaching based upon those early publications. And I know that anyone walking into this gallery, this new work, and I appreciated you know, your having pleasure coming into the new works because that's what I wanted people to see. I actually, even though Rachel said we had no plan, I had a plan many years ago when I walked into this new museum and I said, I'm going to have an exhibit in this museum and I'm going to fill the whole space. I made that plan a long time ago. <laughs> I, I will make that public now. And It's too late. It's too yeah, late to turn back now. I'm not. Yeah, this is exactly what I wanted to do. And I had no idea, even when I made that plan, that I would be working with this pure acrylic. Some of the artists who live here now, there was a joke that I used to talk about this Nova Super Gel that I use that will hold anything, even a house. I repaired my house with the paint that I use and even painted the outside of my house with the paints that I use in my paintings. And it's upheld, you know, for 20-some years. So it's a strong paint. And I'm just dying for the people who are coming from all over the country to see this exhibition because they will be very surprised to walk in to see the difference between what the new work is and what the early work is. I have been working with acrylic paints ever since the early 60s when they were introduced. They were a totally different paint then. Some early paints that I had to go back and reglaze them or use some of the new mediums in order to make sure that the paint was really secure and vibrant. And now I'm using the medium itself as pure paint Mm. on paint. Mm. And that's going to be a big surprise to so many people when they see the work. I've had some hints on Facebook where I'm mixed in and in all the work and people are thinking it's going to be this jammed up group of stuff hanging out of the ceiling. But this exhibition is put together so brilliantly and beautifully by the team that worked here. And there's space for people to walk in and out and all around the works and see the work very simply without having too much to look at at each, you know, at a time. You know, I'm an artist and I... I don't think about my career, really. You know, like, you just make work. When you're working, you make work. It's not about, oh, what is this going to look like in 50 years? But now you're having this retrospective, and as Rachel said, it's really 60 years if you count those first paintings. So I kind of ask you, you know, when you're working and you're involved in all these things, you know, you might have, like, a five-year plan or a vision of, like, what's going to happen maybe... I'm going to have a show in a a year or two, but it's hard to really look that far into the future. So I'm going to ask you, you know, now that you're having this time to really look at all of this stuff, it's all of your work. This is, this is your career here in two galleries, essentially. In what ways might it look a little bit like you envisioned? And in what ways has it gone just completely in a way that you would have never expected? Well, there actually are, and I actually, I've said this to Rachel so many times, she's probably sick of me. I say it's not my career, it's my life work. Mm-hmm. And there's a great deal missing from this work. There are 15 pieces at the gallery that represents me in Illinois. 
there's another 15 pieces at the Gallery in Los Angeles, and there's some other pieces around and in collections. So this is really just a bite of the works that were in my studio. And then now that the studio feels very empty, there's still another 15, 30 pieces in this, because I was able to just work here in Savannah. And I'm amazed at the schedule that we have the years I was teaching painting at SCAD, almost 20 years, 15, 20 years, it seems like it's been that long, 15 years maybe, that I was accomplishing so much. But even this weekend, you know, I, I had started another painting for another exhibition. Yesterday I thought I was going to be calm and quiet, but I had to put that piece down and continue working on it. That's just the way it is. You can't stop and you have to keep painting or making sculpture or doing whatever you do, writing, making music. Uh, this city is for every person in this in Savannah to me as an artist, no matter what they're doing, mm. because of the creative spirit. You know, the jobs have creative essence. This isn't everything. And I feel as if there's beginning of me and there's the recent me. And we have only two or three pieces that are kind of the middles in transition of the 80s into the 90s mm-hmm. that are not here, which at one point sort of bothered me, so I grabbed a couple of other pieces and said, Rachel, we have to put this in because this represents the real transition. Well, I feel now even the works that are in the studio are the real transition of how these new pieces came into being. They're not pieces that necessarily would fit within this exhibition, but there's one piece that has to do with the the hurricane, the storms that we had. Those were shown in Alabama because it was right during that period and right after the big hurricanes we had. There are pieces where I was beginning to experiment with materials adding into the acrylic, but they don't necessarily fit in the show. Rachel surprised me with some pieces that I probably never would have chosen, you know, to be here, but they make sense for Savannah, especially mixed with the information in the vitrines and the boxes that sort of help people understand what this is all about. (laughs) All right, I've got two more questions for you. And the first thing I want to ask is you mentioned Rachel and the brilliance of her helping to put this exhibition together. This is a real embracing by the museum of a local artist. And I want to ask you, what do you think museums can do to sort of bolster and support local artists? Because this is a really big deal. This is we talk about the kind of exhibitions that are in this space and to put you in that same conversation with those other exhibitions, it matters a lot and it does sort of, in a way, legitimizes local artists as being equivalent to the other artists that you've shown here. So talk a little about that. Like what role can a museum play in sort of supporting and helping to grow artists that are local to where they exist? There have been a number of national artists who have shown in this museum who were friends, people that I knew, and it was interesting. I believe that there are, I know that there are many people who come to Savannah just to be quiet to work, and that that was my idea. Okay, I'll go to a place that's not so crazy like New York or Los Angeles. But also, for me at the time, this was like little San Francisco. San Francisco is a place where you could learn, you could make art. You don't sell very much art. Savannah's just like that. Um, And it's beautiful. That was the whole point of being in an environment that's quite beautiful. But I think there needs to be a balance. It's, you know, for example, across the hallway is the Rembrandt exhibition. That's really extremely important for young artists to see masterwork, really good basic drawing and technique. 
also to see national artists, but then there are many artists who live here. You know, as I said before, there are writers, musicians, artists who live here quietly, who, after you've been here for a while, you think, well, I came here to be quiet and just to be able to focus on my work, but then nobody's really paying attention to me, or people don't know what I do. And there are people who live here in Savannah who had extensive experience and exposure in other places and historically have ancestors and relevance in the South. People imagine, and when at one point I said to someone, oh, you should come to Savannah. Oh, who wants to go to Savannah, Suzanne? That was what was response. And I thought, well, you know, it's much more sophisticated. There's so many things to do in Savannah, really, that can be diverse. And people, new people come here thinking that this is going to be a most wonderful experience. And I think we've had the difficulty between what is old here, people trying to hold on to the old experience and history, Mm -hmm. not wanting to impose new history, like public works of art, that I remember we had some public art at one point that people could interact with, but it had to be moved because it was not the history, the historic art. There should be a combination of what is historic and what is contemporary, and I think this museum can do that. We have three museums here, the Telfair Academy, which I used to take my students and love to go there because there are really historic paintings, and I love the bellows, and I love the night, and I love the Italian women, and I was just talking about the paintings, the little old-fashioned paintings with the flowers, That, but they teach us how to paint. But this is a new space, a contemporary space, that really should be exciting and experimental for the artists who live here as well. If people study and do some incredible things at school when they're studying, then this gives the opportunity to expand the experimentation and also having curators come to visit. When you just work in your studio, and, and I, you know, I, my studio was just jam-packed because I was just working, working, and it didn't matter who came in because I'm an older artist. I come from a different period. Younger artists need to have exchange and conversation with others. And I could even imagine a forum within this space of younger artists interacting with one another as a result of a work that might have, might be collaborative, might be uh, a larger format of space, using the space in the way that I'm using the space. And I know that probably is making, that would make museum people nervous, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sure it would. But, you know, we are in the 21st century now. And since there are three museums here, there's this historic, you know, house with, you know, museum that was for the, represents the history of slavery. Mm-hmm. And then there's the academy, which represents a traditional kind of painting that's really important in sculpture. And that was the first place that I was taking when I visited here in 1981. That was the only place to come to. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed it. And I took my students there so they could draw and learn in that museum. And it's possible to come into a contemporary museum and also study and study what's going on. When, you know, one of the exhibitions that I love, and I don't think it was here, it was at Space, it was Bertha Husband, who had all of her mm-hmm. journals that related to the artwork and her travels. And I was so impressed with that because she was a person that was quiet, who lived here. People didn't know very much about her. But that was a way to learn about yeah. her history as a person who lived in Savannah. I'm going to ask you one last question here, and I, you mentioned the young artists. And I want to kind of ask you, you know, you're having this really 
phenomenal exhibition here in this space. And a lot of our listenership is our young artists that kind of all know each other to a certain extent, and they're trying to build this community. So I'm going to ask you, you've made a successful career. You've gone from place to place, and now you've got this exhibition here. What is some advice you might give to some of our younger artists who are listening here who are maybe struggling or questioning because you've persevered and the results speak for themselves? I think when I was teaching, I used to, there was a tiny book, Henry Miller, called The Smile at the Foot of the Ladder, and it was his paintings and poetry. And one of the things in the book said, what's most important is just doing it. Just do it. And I think I used to tell my students that when I was teaching. And you just have to keep doing it. And it's really hard because we, in our lives as artists, we go up and down. doesn't matter whether museum, you know, musicians, poets, whoever we are, dancers. We live on an edge all the time. I think I have to say you just have to strive to make the best quality work that you can. Know what other artists are doing. Uh, And it's amazing because you may think you have innovated something or made something really new, and then you go online and you discover there's two other artists out there making something exactly like yours. That's really awful, you know, when that experience happens. But you still have to continue. I look to see what other artists are doing just so that I know what's going on, and I also strive to make it my own, to work from observation as opposed to copying and cutting and pasting. I see a lot of that now. Mm-hmm. And I think attempting to make work that is your own, to be original in that work, in the whole creative process is really important. Not to be afraid of criticism. People will criticize anyway, but you just do what you want to do, any what you you know the way you're going to do it. And sometimes it turns out really good. There are you know there are technical issues always, but then how do you turn those technical ideas or basics into your own work? Suzanne Jackson, Rachel Reese, thank you so much for being on Art on the Air Field Notes today. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this week's episode of Art on the Air with your host, Rob Hessler. Listen every Wednesday for our live show, broadcasting from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on 107.5 FM, Savannah Soundings, and worldwide at wruu.org. And you can catch past episodes on the WRUU station archives on our website, as well as on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. We'll talk to you next week where we'll have another batch of art on the air.